Dean Bible Ministries presents the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Robert Dean, pastor of West Houston Bible Church. These and other Bible lessons are available from www.deanbible.org. Now let's listen to our lesson from God's Word, the Bible. Two announcements. Congregational meeting Sunday morning immediately following the morning worship service, and then the second announcement has to do with the conference, so make sure you uh, uh, can help out if you can. We do need um, volunteers for a number of different uh, different things, and um, you can contact Connie or Mark. I think right now we're almost set, but we can always use a few more people because you never know who's going to get the flu and who's going to get sick and who's going to have to work all of a sudden, things like that. So that's all that I can think of right now. How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, Sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, let's have a few moments of silent prayer to make sure that we are ready to study the word this evening, make sure that we're in fellowship, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful that we can be here this evening, that we can be refreshed, strengthened, encouraged by your word, that we can be reminded that all history is under your control and whatever circumstances, details that uh, surprise us in life are under your control. Nothing surprises you and your omniscience. You know about all things and that you are working all things to your purpose and for your glory. Father, we're thankful that um, Taylor Williams is uh, doing uh, much better and in remission from his uh, cancer, and we continue to pray for his recovery, continue to pray for Jim Myers, and he's having a tremendous uh, ministry, very busy down in uh, uh, Brazil until he returns on Sunday. We pray that he will return safely and that you will uh, bless his ministry uh, down there in Brazil. And then, Father, continue to pray for Roy Zook, Professor uh, Emeritus now from Dallas Seminary, and his uh, diagnosis of cancer, pray that the doctors will be able to treat that successfully. Father, we pray that we might be strengthened in your word tonight, come to a greater understanding of who you are and your work in history and how all these things that you uh, prophesied and laid out through typology in the Old Testament are fulfilled precisely and exactly and at the time that you intended. And we pray this in Christ's name, amen. Tonight we're shifting into the next chapter in Acts. The next chapter in Acts, Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2 brings us to that great event, the day of Pentecost in approximately A.D. 33, which is the day of the birth of the church. There is something that happens on the day of Pentecost that is a break with what has happened before. It wasn't as clear at that time because, remember, we're still in a transition period. 
I went through that back when we had our introduction, that the most important thing to understand about Acts is its transition. Transitional, there are certain things that happen on the day of Pentecost that we'll study, which indicate that this is where the break occurs, where there is something new, radically different that God is doing in history, but he is nevertheless still reaching out to uh, the Jews still reaching out to Israel. There is still the offer on the table uh, for the kingdom. And so there is a legitimate offer on the table, and a lot of people have trouble trying to balance that, but it's a nevertheless a true statement, and we'll get into that a little bit a little bit this, this evening. So when we come to Acts 2, verse 1, we read, When the day of Pentecost had fully come, When the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. Now, first thing we should ask ourselves is, who are the they? This is one of those orphan pronouns hanging there, that um, when you look at the way the chapter divisions and versifications have taken place, it separates it visually from us. So most people read a chapter at a time. So you read chapter 1, then you come back the next day and read chapter 2, and you don't catch the connection between the last verse of chapter 1 and the first verse of chapter 2. So let me read them uh, for you, uh, to, uh, putting them together. And they cast lots for them. Now, to whom does the they refer in that verse? The they refers to the 120 who were in the upper room. Now, the 120 who were in the upper room included women as well as men. It included the 11 disciples plus Matthias, and it included, um, and it was a pretty crowded room because you take 120 people and you stick them in a typical upper room that you have in a uh, Jewish home at that time, and we've seen the, the remain, remains of foundation remains of some of the first century ha- houses in different areas of, um, of Jerusalem, and we're, we're talking about a room that would be no larger than, wouldn't even be as large as a quarter of this, of this room. So it's not very large, so it's close quarters. Whenever you see pictures of the day of Pentecost, they always stick 120 people out on the, uh, out on the steps of the, of the temple. But the 120 people only came together for one day during this 10-day period between the Ascension and uh, the day of Pentecost. And they came together for this time of prayer and this selection of a disciple to replace Judas. And then they went home except for maybe the 11 who were staying in that upper room. Some of them had family uh, in Jerusalem, and they might have been staying with them, but they didn't all stay together. And the, if we continue through the verse, we read, they cast lots for them, that is, in choosing between uh, <coughs> Justice or Barsabbas, also called Justice, and Matthias, they cast lots for them, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the eleven apostles. And all the way through the, the uh, chapter of chapter one, the um, second or the third person plural. 
pronoun they usually refers to the eleven, usually refers to the disciples. When we come to the end of the chapter, the last plural noun in the chapter is apostles, and the first plural pronoun that we have in chapter 2 is they, and the nearest antecedent that to which it would refer is apostles. So when we come to 2 verse 1 and we read, when the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place, is restricted to the 11 plus Matthias. They just chose him. He's in their group. And so they were together uh, going to the temple on the day of Pentecost. And as they were headed to the temple, they were either on their way. It doesn't tell us exactly where this happened, probably near the steps of the temple. Suddenly they heard a sound from heaven like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house uh, where they were sitting. So, excuse me, they were, I misspoke a minute ago, they were in the house uh, getting ready to go to the temple. Now, I got ahead of myself. 2-1, when the day of Pentecost, I want to talk about the day of Pentecost a minute to understand what's going on here. The day of Pentecost is an annual feast. There were three major feasts in the Jewish calendar that required all adult Jewish males to make a pilgrimage to Jerusalem to go to the temple. And so on any of these days, there would be uh, a swelling of the population of Jerusalem by uh, around, according to Josephus, by about 150,000 people. So all of a sudden, the, the city just gets packed out. So they're coming from all over the uh, Roman Empire and beyond because some come from Parthia, some come from Elam, and there's a list uh, that we'll get into down in verse uh, 9 and 10 that describes those coming from the uh, eastern area outside of the Roman Empire. So they're coming from all over. So the day of Pentecost uh, arrives, and this is this annual feast day, and it comes, um, it's called the Feast of Weeks because it's seven weeks or 49 days uh, after the uh, after the the day after Passover, that's when you they began to count it was the day after Passover. Passover is the first day of the uh, of the feast of unleavened bread, and they would begin the count from the day after uh, Passover. The old the observance in terms of the Old Testament ritual is laid out in Leviticus chapter three, verses fifteen to twenty one. We are not going to go there uh, this evening. There are seven other passages that mention the Feast of Weeks. Four are in the Old Testament and three are in the New Testament. It's mentioned in Exodus chapter 23, verse 16, uh, Exodus 34, 22, Numbers 28, 26. That's Exodus 23, 16, Exodus 34, 22, Numbers 28, 26. Uh, and Deuteronomy 16, 9 through 12. All of those are in the Torah. All of those are in the first five books of Moses. Then there are three references in the New Testament. Acts chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, the passage we're studying. Acts chapter 20, verse 16. And 1 Corinthians 16, 8. This is the most significant reference to it. 
It's called the Feast of Weeks because it comes seven weeks after Passover. Now, at Passover, Passover, you have the Feast of First Fruits, and it's the first fruits of the spring harvest season. Whereas the Feast of Weeks celebrates the first fruits of the summer harvest festival. So they are both representing uh, the first fruits of the harvest coming at the, and the feast of the harvest comes uh, at the end of the spring harvest period, just at the very beginning of the summer uh, harvest period. It's a time period when the Jewish people were commanded to rejoice. Come together, it is a joyous festival because they are rejoicing in God's provision for them, that he has given them a, a full harvest. This is in Deuteronomy chapter 16, verses 9 through 12. Now, in the biblical practice, they were to take two loaves of bread that were leavened. It's the only time in any of these sacrifices that you had the... Uh, that, that leaven was allowed. Remember, leaven always depicts sin. This is the only time you have leaven allowed in these two loaves. And these loaves are laid out and um, on, on a single sheet, and they are a wave offering uh, to the Lord. In terms of practice today, the Jewish practice today is to read the book of Ruth because Ruth takes place, or some of the action in Ruth takes place at a time of harvest. So they'll read Ruth. Ruth was a Gentile who uh, converted to uh, Old Testament, the Old Testament practice of the law. And because she was a convert to the obedience to the law, uh, this is how modern Judaism interprets the um, the feast of of of, of um, Shavuot in the Hebrew as the time of the reading of the law. So the rabbis say that when God gave the Mosaic law to Moses, there was thunder and lightning on the mountain, so nobody could sleep down below. So they're supposed to stay awake all night and read the Torah. Uh, I would assume that the Orthodox do, and they're probably the only ones uh, that do. At most uh, most times of Jewish holidays, it's a time of eating. They're not any different from the rest of us. We have special days, and that's what we enjoy doing is eating as well. We're all pretty much the same. And in the Jewish practice, they have kreplach. Kreplach is a triangular piece of pasta that is stuffed like a ravioli or like a Chinese wonton, and it's stuffed with uh, ground meat, onions, and garlic, and sometimes they will uh, fry that. Also, they will have, um, uh, they'll, sometimes they'll fry it, put it in chicken soup. It's also a time for eating uh, a dairy product because God was going to take them to the land of milk and honey, so they'll make cheese blintzes and uh, eat cheese. And it's a good rationale. And we don't have any rationales quite that good. So uh, Sometimes they'll take branches from uh, trees and put them inside the synagogue on the floor as a reminder that they are to be praying for a full and bounteous harvest. Now, what are the implications of the, the day of Pentecost? If you read about this, which I've done over the years, and I've seen, I've been really surprised by some of the interpretations that some people take. The day of Pentecost is part of the Jewish calendar. 
It is the final uh, three feasts that occur in the spring calendar. You have the day of uh, the day of Passover, you have the Feast of First Fruits, and you have uh, Shavuot or Pentecost, which comes 50 days after the day after after uh, Passover. Now we know what Passover depicted. It is a depiction of the sacrifice. You sacrifice the lamb. The lamb represents. Uh, Jesus, who's the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. Uh, Passover is a depiction of God's redemption of the nation, and it is the depiction of God's provision of of a new life as he brings the uh, Israelites out of slavery in Egypt to bring them into a new land. So it all deals with the process of salvation. Then you have the day of first fruits. Day of first fruits is a depiction of the resurrection. Jesus rose from the dead on the day of first fruits. Every single Jewish holiday points to something, and there is a comparable fulfillment that occurs on that day, not a day earlier, not a day later. So then when we get into the fall festivals, you have another series of, um, of holidays and events there. And what surprises me is that When you read about the day of Pentecost, you will find a number of writers who will say, well, the day of Pentecost is fulfilled in the birth of the church. What's wrong with that? These are all related to God's plan for Israel, not the church. The church wasn't expected. There's no prophecy related to the church in the Old Testament. The day of Pentecost cannot be full. The the birth of the church on the day of Pentecost is not a fulfillment of the typology of Pentecost from the Old Testament. What is it? Well, if you remember, what was promised in the New Covenant to Israel? Jeremiah 31, 33. We have it again in Joel 2, which Peter will quote on this day. You have the promise of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. If Israel had accepted Jesus as the Messiah, he would have brought in the kingdom. Now, some people say, well, he had to die. Yeah, the Romans would have killed him. You know, God's plan's not going to suffer because the wrong, somebody didn't execute, pardon the pun, the way they should have. So Jesus still would have been executed as a payment for sin, and the the day of Pentecost would have been fulfilled within the Jewish calendar in terms of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit still came on the day of Pentecost to the Jews, didn't he? So anybody there that wasn't Jewish that got the Holy Spirit? Not one. So it's perfect fulfillment of typology in relationship to Israel. And Peter's message on the day of Pentecost and his message again in Acts 3 are both going to offer the kingdom to Israel again. Even though they've rejected it, they rejected, them, they rejected it from John the Baptist, they rejected it from Jesus, they crucified Jesus, they're still going to reject it. But you have the typologies related to Israel and God's plan for Israel, not to the church. Now, a question that nobody answers, but a speculation I have, is does, is this outpouring going to be fulfilled when the Holy Spirit is poured out on Israel at the end of the tribulation? I don't think so. It's fulfilled already because it was poured out upon Israel. Because the typology is that the Feast of, of, of Trumpets 
which comes in the fall, is the typology to be fulfilled when the Messiah comes triumphantly. It's a long time from September to get around to the next May or June. And there's nothing scriptural that allows for that long a time frame. You only have 75 days for the cleanup. So the outpouring of the Holy Spirit comes just prior to the second coming, or at the time of the second coming, which fits in the early fall calendar. So this has already been fulfilled. God poured out the Holy Spirit upon the Jewish people, but it was only those that had accepted uh, Jesus as the as the Messiah. The two loaves, possibly, can't say this for certain, but possibly they represent uh, Gentiles and the Jews who are brought together in the church as one, but it is God's outpouring of the Spirit to all mankind, which typically in the Scripture is categorized as the Jews and the Greeks. So that fits the uh, fulfillment of the typology there. Now we get into Acts 2, verse 2, and we see what suddenly occurs that surprises the apostle, they're not expecting it. Jesus didn't say, wait for the Holy Spirit. He's coming on the day of Pentecost. He just said, wait until the promise of the Father is fulfilled. Stay in Jerusalem until the promise is fulfilled. So suddenly, there's this sound from heaven of a mighty rushing wind. Think of a tornado. This isn't just a small windstorm. This comes, this is like a locomotive coming down, uh, coming down from the Temple Mount. And they hear this mighty rushing wind, and it fills the entire house where they're sitting. Now, here's an interesting, we have an interesting little play on words here. Luke is not necessarily known, see if I can get my, there we go. Luke is not necessarily known for his use of paranomasias. Paranomasias a play on words. But he does that here. In this verse, he uses that top word there, plerao, and it has the meaning of to fill or fulfill, and you can see that the first three letters, which form the root from which this verb is, is formed, are the, the uh, P, la, uh, Lambda, and Eta, P-L-A, P-L-E. That is also the, the root of the second word, pimplami. The second one, you see it, it, but it's in the middle of the word, so it has a P-I-M as a prefix, and then it has an M-I. It's a different kind of verb. It's called, in the conjugation in Greek, it's called a me-verb. So you have plerao and pimplemi. And even though those they're built off of the same root, they don't have the same usage. They're, not, they're, they're synonyms in one way, but they're not interchangeable. They're not used in the Scripture always in interchangeable ways. A, synonyms can be depicted as, I should have drawn this out, as two intersecting circles where there is an area that is within both circles of commonality, but there's areas of meaning of the two different words that are different from the other word, and so the words cannot be completely uh, exchanged as identical synonyms. I think that's a mistake that a lot of Bible students and exegetes have made over the years. Dispensationalists whom you love and adore made this mistake many times. 
And they argued on the use of pimplami, which is used with the Holy Spirit a number of times. We'll look at the uses in a minute. It's used with the Holy Spirit many times, and you'll read Chafer, and you'll read Walver, and you'll read Ryrie, and you'll read many others, and they all say, they'll go to those verses and say, this shows that the filling of the Holy Spirit is a repeated event. What's wrong with that? It is a repeated event. But the word translated to be, the com- that's the command in Ephesians 5.18, to become filled or to be filled by means of the Holy Spirit is plerao, it's not pimplami. Pimplami is a different word. It has similar meanings, but it's always used in unique and distinct circumstances. And you can't argue from the circumstances of Pimplami to understand the distinctions of Plerao. And yet they all did that. They all flunked Greek at this point. As a result, the Chaferian view, I use Chafer's name, Lisbury Chafer's view, related to confession and the filling of by means of the spirit of Ephesians 5.18, has come under attack wrongly because of this uh, misunderstanding of how these two words are used. So we're going to have to look at this because it's very important. It's also something that I'm working on for the conference in two weeks, and um, we've got to clarify this. So we have these two words. So what we have in verse 2 is the sentence, Suddenly there came a sound from heaven, so you have noise as of a rushing mighty wind, which means they felt something as well because it's the the idea of a wind coming. It's the spirit. That's uh, the word here for uh, wind is not the word, uh, it's not the exact word pneuma. It is a cognate built off of the root. It is noes, which means a powerful wind. And it fills the house. That's one of the meanings of of plerao, is to fill something up. And so it fills the whole house where they were uh, sitting. So they're probably having breakfast before they were going to head down, um, before they were going to head down to the temple. Then we read in verse 3, the next thing that happens is there appeared to them divided tongues as a fire. fire. So you have this they're, they're seeing something visual that comes in and is over their heads, and it looks like these tongues are flames of fire, and we're told one sat upon each of them. So this is a manifestation of God so that people, they can visually see and feel and hear that something is happening. If you'd had a video recorder, you could have recorded this. This isn't something that happens inside their head. They're not all having a uh, shared uh, group hallucination here. There, there is something objective and real that is taking place, and so it's seen, it's felt, and it is heard. And the result is stated in verse 4. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. So we have two big doctrines in verse 4. The first is related to understanding the filling ministry of God the Holy Spirit, and the second is this thing called tongues and their relationship to one another. Now, the word that we have here for filled is this um, second word, Pimplami. It is the aorist, passive, third person plural of Pimplami. They were all, uh, 
filled. That means the the passive voice means that they are acted upon. It doesn't have anything to do with their volition. It is something that happens to them apart from their volition. So it is not, this isn't a volitional issue. Now, Ephesians 5.18, be filled by means of the Spirit. It's a command. Is that volitional? Yes, that's volitional. That's your first clue that it's something different. This is something that happens to them apart from their volition. It's unexpected. It is a sovereign act of God that has nothing to do with, um, with their volition. And what happened when they were filled uh, and let's look at the phrase after that. The Holy Spirit is pneumatos hagiu, which is a genitive construction. So the genitive isn't expressing means. It's expressing uh, content here. They're full of the Holy Spirit. That would be the best way they were, they, they were filled, or they were, the were indicates a past tense. They were full of the Holy Spirit. And what was the result of the, the filling? What did they do? They spoke. Ah, what a brilliant observation. Y'all are so sharp tonight. They were full of the Holy Spirit and they spoke. Well, isn't that interesting? So what does this word pimplamy mean? Well, the basic root of any of these words, and there's actually a third word, which is the adjective form, which is play race. And we'll look at that uh, uh, probably a little later. But it has the same idea. Uh, so that root, that P-L. E, or play root, has the idea of filling something up. But it's applied and used in some similar ways between these three words and in some different ways. First of all, the common use, the core common meaning, is that something is filled up like you fill up a bucket with water. Okay? Are you, uh, are it's sometime, and that's applied in some different ways. Both words, both pimplamy and plerao, are used to uh, describe the fulfillment of prophecy. So it's something that is in, that comes to a state of, full, of being full or being filled, uh, used in an idiomatic way of something being brought to completion, not in the sense of teleao, which is maturity, but in the sense of bringing something to uh, to its fullness to a to its wholeness, in a sense. For example, in Luke 21:22, speaking of the uh, tribulation, excuse me, not speaking of the tribulation, speaking of the judgment on Jerusalem that would come in A.D. 70, for these are the days of vengeance that all things which are written might be fulfilled. So it's used to describe fulfillment prophecy, but that's the only time pimplamy is used in terms of fulfillment of prophecy in the Gospels. It's used as a... No, that's not true. It's used a couple of other places, but that gives you a good example of it. It's used as a descriptive phrase. It describes um, people. In some cases, they're, they're full of wrath, full of confusion, full of anger. Uh, so it's used adjectivally where what they're, the noun that is the object of the verb that's in the genitive case, describes their, uh, a characteristic that, that dominates at that particular, uh, particular moment. And the adjective form is used that same way when, you, when it's used to describe certain people, certain uh, people in terms of their uh, character. We talk about uh, Stephen is described as being full, play race, adjective, not a verb, 
full of wisdom and the Spirit. It's descriptive. Okay, a, a noun and an adjective, which is actually a noun, the Greeks just said, the Greeks invented these categories, and an adjective was a noun that said something about another noun. So nouns are, by virtue of their nature, rather static. Chair means chair. You can't really fudge on chair. But when you take a verb, because verb describes an action, running can describe a much wider range of action. So when you look at the way the noun, pimplemi or plerao, is used, it, it has less movement in terms of its meaning than a verb does. That's important because when we, we get to the conclusion here, and I'm talking about being filled with the Spirit, you can't take the noun descriptive concept of, of, of uh, play race and use that to define the verbal meaning of play ra'o in Ephesians 5.18 because the noun structure is used in a different way than a command, than an imperative verb is used. Okay, I'll repeat that several times. It's used, um, pimplemi is also used with the Holy Spirit. Uh, well, well, uh, pimplemi, let me give you a couple of examples of pimplemi used as a descriptive phrase. Luke 4.28, so all those in the synagogue, when they heard these things, were full of wrath. It's translated filled with wrath, but literally it's full of wrath. Uh, Acts 3.10 Then they knew that it was he who sat begging alms at the beautiful gate of the temple, and they were full of wonder and amazement. See that phrase, full of wonder and amazement, says they were, they, they, they were amazed. It's describing their state. They're, they're, they're in awe. Uh, Acts 5.17, the high priest rose up and all those who were with him, and they were full of indignation. So it's describing the character at that particular moment. Uh, Acts 19.29, so the whole city was full of confusion and rushed into the theater with one accord. Uh, full of confusion, so it's an adjectival uh, descriptive phrase. Now, so in those ways of being descriptive and of talking about just the basic meaning of fulfillment of prophecy or filling up something, that's where you have the overlap between pimplemi and plerao. But pimplemi moves in another direction when it is talking about the Spirit, when it's saying someone is full of the Spirit. And I'm going to give you these examples. I don't have them on the overhead, but I want to look at them so you can underline the phrase filled with the Spirit in these verses. And then I'm going to see if you can make an important observation as to what always happens when someone is, is pimplamied by the Holy Spirit. So look, look at the first chapter of Luke. First chapter of Luke. In the first chapter of Luke, we have the father of John the Baptist, although he doesn't know it yet, Zechariah, who is serving, who is a priest, and it's his time to serve in, in the temple. And so he goes into the temple to, um, to take care of things, and an angel appears to him and announces to him that he is going to become a father and that Elizabeth is going to become pregnant and that they are going to have a son and describes what the son's ministry would be like and that he would be the forerunner for the Messiah. Then, in starting in verse 26, a similar event occurs, and Gabriel appears to Mary 
and tells Mary that even though she's not married, even though she's a virgin, that she is going to become pregnant and she is going to give birth to the Messiah. And this will fulfill uh, the promise of the Old, Te- of the Old Testament in Isaiah uh, 7.14. Then we come to verse 39. After Mary has found out that she's pregnant, after the angel appeared to her, we're told that in those days Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah. So she's hiked a ways from Nazareth down to, um, uh, down to Judah. And she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb and what? And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, most people stop there because that's the end of the verse. But that's not the end of the sentence. Let's read the whole sentence. Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit, and she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the son of your greeting came to my ears, the baby of my womb leaped for joy, and blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. So she was filled with the Spirit, Pimplemi. What did she do? She spoke. Wow. In Acts 2, they're filled with the Spirit, and they spoke. In Luke 1, Elizabeth is filled with the Spirit, and she speaks. Well, let's turn the page. Uh, Turn the page, and... We'll come to Luke 140, um, 167. Zechariah didn't believe the angel when the angel told him he was going to become a daddy, so uh, he was struck dumb, which means he couldn't speak. He was mute until the baby was born. And once the baby was born, then he uh, began to speak. And we read in verse 67, And his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, you see a pattern here. He's been playmate, and what does he do? He speaks. Here he's, he prophesied. Okay, let's look at another example. That's it for the Gospels. All the Gospels, you have th- those examples, and, and uh, that's it. Other than John the Baptist. I skipped over that one, but he also will be filled with the Spirit. And it's Pimplamy again. Okay, so it's the same use. And, of course, John the Baptist has a unique role in a unique ministry, and he's a what? He's the last of the Old Testament prophets. What did prophets do? They spoke. Okay? Now we're going to skip over to Acts chapter 2. Well, we've already covered that pretty much. You know what they did. They were filled with the Holy Spirit, and they began to speak. Let's go to Acts 4. Acts chapter 4. Acts chapter 4, verse 31. Now, this is a situation when Peter and John are brought before the Sanhedrin. And the Sanhedrin's getting a little irritated because at this point you have probably over ten or 15,000 Jews who in just a couple of days had believed in Jesus as a Messiah, and things are getting a little bit outside of their control. And so uh, in Acts uh, 4.31, we have a... Another use of this word. And when they had prayed, this is the disciples praying in terms for courage and strength and confronting this opposition. 
When they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, kind of like on the day of Pentecost. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. And what did they do? They continued to speak the word of God with boldness. Pimplemi is followed by what? Speaking in every one of these things. It's, it's, this isn't talking about Ephesians 5.18 and the spiritual life. This is talking about a unique... Did they ask for it? Did they look for it? Did they do anything? Did they confess their sins? No. It's just a sovereign surprise, uh, one-time one act of God for that particular time for a sovereign purpose that ends with some sort of a statement. They, they're speaking in some way, whether it's prophecy or whether it's related to John the Baptist's message or something of that nature. Acts 9.17 now, this is where it gets interesting. I want to skip to one. Acts 4.8, Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers of the people and elders of Israel. So before his uh, third sermon there in Acts 4.8, he's filled with the Holy Spirit, Pimplemi, and he um, speaks. So we have filling, Pimplemi speaking all the way through here. Acts 9.17 looks like, oh, well, wait a minute. We have a problem here. This doesn't fit the pattern, but let's see what happens. This is after Saul has been confronted by uh, the resurrected, glorified Lord Jesus Christ on the road to Damascus, and he's blinded by the bright flash of the Shekinah glory, and he, is, uh, he goes to Damascus under orders uh, from the Lord to meet a person who will then come to him and uh, cure his blindness. Verse 9, we, uh, verse 8, Saul rose from the ground. Although his eyes were open, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him to Damascus. And for three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. Skipping down to verse 17, he goes to see Ananias. In verse seven, and in verses 13 and following, Ananias comes to him and heals him. He can see. Verse um, 17, Ananias, after Ananias was commissioned by the Lord to go heal him, Ananias departed, entered the house where Saul was, and laying his hands on him said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Same phraseology. Hmm. What happens in verse 18? And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized, and taking food, he was strengthened. Well, he didn't speak, did he? Well, not yet. We have to look at verse 20. And immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogues. So he is speaking, isn't he? Immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, Isn't this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem, etc., etc.? So the point that I'm making is Pimplemi events are always followed by somebody speaking, somebody giving a message, somebody having a career as a prophet uh, giving a message. So, conclusion, number one, Pimplemi is always repeated, unexpected fillings. We can't go to these as a pattern for the fulfillment of Ephesians 5.18. Totally different event. They start in a different dispensation. They start in Luke chapter 1 with 
an announcement, a prophecy about the John the Baptist. Then we have Elizabeth. Then we have Zechariah. Uh, this is all in another dispensation. doesn't have anything to do with the church age ministry of God the Holy Spirit. Second, they are all followed with some kind of utterance. It has something similar, it is something similar to inspiration that's going on here. It's not identical. I'm not saying it's inspiration. It's something similar. Now we come to the second word, plerao, which is the first word up there. Plerao, number one, is also used to fulfill prophecy. It's used that way in all those passages that we've studied again and again in the four ways that the Old Testament is used in the New Testament in fulfillment statements. Matthew 2.15, Matthew 2.17, Matthew 2.23. So it's used just like Pimplemi to express fulfillment of prophecy. It is the dominant word rather than Pimplemi. Second, it's also used of just filling something up, uh, such as in Acts 2, verse 2, that the wind filled up the room. Uh, but we have a fun one. Turn to Acts 5, verse 3. The Holy Spirit always sticks a word like this and a verse like this to separate the wheat from the chaff. Now, this is, a, <clears throat> this is also a controversial passage among some people. It's a story of the first people who were ever slain by the Spirit, Ananias and Sapphira. If you don't have a holiness Pentecostal background, you don't understand that pun. You have a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property. And with his wife's knowledge, he, that is Ananias, kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, now he could know this without the Holy Spirit giving him a clue, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land. Now, I've actually read competent theologians who have said this is a verse showing that Ananias was Satan-possessed. There's no possession terminology here. I have gone through every single passage again and again and again in the Gospels that relate to demon possession, and they all use words like so-and-so had a demon or so-and-so was diamondizomai. And all the details are in the spiritual warfare book. You don't have that kind of language here. It is, Satan didn't fill him. Satan filled his heart to do something. Heart here, often the word heart stands for the mind or the thinking part of the soul. It is influence. Satan is influencing. He's not controlling Ananias. He's influencing Ananias to lie about he's tempted him. And he's he's he is... Uh, lying about how much money he's giving uh, to the church. What we read here is this word play rao. It's influence. Just like it is in Ephesians 5.18. It's not control, it's influence. This is the parallel passage for understanding that play rao means influence, not control. So, that's a 
key passage for understanding that. It's also used, uh, another way in which the word used is in relation to time, that when so-and-so had filled up 40 years of life, it's sort of an idiom, or, or when they've completed a journey, filled a journey, or at the end of three days, literally it's at the fulfillment of three days. Uh, passages like that you have that used that way in Acts 7.23 and Acts 9.23. And then our passage that we quote so frequently, Ephesians 5.18. So let's close with that. We have 10 minutes to have some fun with Ephesians 5.18. Ephesians 5.18. It, this comes in a, in a section of Ephesians that is talking about how a believer is to live. The metaphor that is used for that is the word walking. We Christians are commanded to walk in for one, walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. In Ephesians 5, 2, we read, And walk by, in love or by means of love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. And then um, we have 17 imperatives culminating in the last command, which is to be filled by means of the Holy Spirit. This is in Ephesians 5.18. But there's a contrast there which always derails people. Do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. Now, that's a bad translation because in the Greek it's the preposition in, spelled E-N, with the, with the uh, dative of, uh, of pneuma for spirit. Now, that can be in the sphere of something, or it can be by means of something. It should be instrumental. And most people understand it that way. With is, it implies association. The word filling with the Holy Spirit also implies to some people that you're filled with content. But the Greek uses a, the verb plus a dative, and datives don't, commu- don't communicate content. Content is like if I say, go, go fill my cu- cup with coffee. I'm talking about what goes into the cup. That's, that's used, a genitive expression is used. If I want to say, fill this up by means of something, fill it up with what's in that coffee pot back there, I'm talking about means. Okay, and but that's not talking about the content. It's just talking about the instrument that's used to fill the coffee cup. It's not talking about what's going into the coffee cup. So Ephesians 5.18 doesn't tell us what we're being filled with in terms of content. We're not getting any more of the Holy Spirit. See, if it's content, that would imply that you're going to get more of the Holy Spirit. You're never going to get any more of the Holy Spirit than you got the day you were saved. He indwells you. He's fully present in every believer from the day you're saved. You're never going to get any more of him, and you're never going to have any less of him. Forever. Isn't that great? Forever we have the indwelling of God the Holy Spirit. That doesn't change. Now, if we look at the structure of this verse, it looks at, if you don't know anything about Greek culture, when you look at this, it looks like, there is a comparison between what happens to a person who drinks too much wine and what happens to a person who is filled with the Spirit. And especially back in the days of the 
mid to late 19th century and the early 20th century when the evangelical church was just absolutely obsessed with temperance and prohibition and the evils of demon rum and all of the other things that went on. The modern church isn't, probably should have, be a little more concerned than it actually is. Uh, I, I saw, read a study in, in Christianity Today that came out in the mid-80s, 83, 84, something like that, and it cited a study that they had done among Christians in 1951 when Christianity Today was first being published. In 1951, 90% of the Christians interviewed believed that it was a sin to drink alcoholic beverages at all, period. And by 1983, n- over 90% of Christians interviewed believed it was just perfectly fine to drink alcoholic beverages. That's a tidal wave shift of opinion over a period of 30 years. That's, that's huge. Probably the, ba- the licentious baby boomers are to be thanked for that. But this is not making a comparison of control. It's not talking about don't let wine control you, but let the Holy Spirit control you. To understand this, you have to have some understanding of the background, the religious background of of the Greco-Roman Empire, especially in the area of what is now modern Turkey or ancient term was Anatolia and, and in Greece. And out of Anatolia in the east came this, this god that became known as Dionysius or Bacchus, who was the god of wine. And he was worshipped in all manner of drunken orgies where the menads, who were the female high priestesses of Dionysius, would go up and they would have these orgies and they would, they would eat raw, raw meat and they would dance and whirl and play tambourines and cymbals. Doesn't Paul say something about if I... Uh, something with tambourines and cymbals, but do not have love, I am nothing. See, he's playing off of that in, 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 in the epistle to the Corinthians when he's going to talk about tongues. And, and they would, it's, Bacchus is the god of wine, so they would drink wine and, and work themselves up into an inebriated state so that the god would enter into them and they would commune and have fellowship with the god and the god would strengthen them. All these other things would happen, including ecstatic utterance, which is what we have down in some churches, which they mistake as speaking in tongues. But all of this came out of the fact of, of this, this background of Dionysian worship, which was all over the uh, Greek Empire uh, and Roman Empire at that time. It was one of the most popular uh, religions and mystery religions uh, at the time. And how did they think that they got so close to God? How did they have fellowship with Dionysius? Through wine. The instrument that gave you fellowship and rapport and intimacy with the God was wine. So Paul says here, wine isn't the means to spirituality. Don't be drunk by means of wine, which is excess, which is asotia. It's a lack of health. Sotia there is the same root as we have for sozo, for salvation or health or, or deliverance. So he says, don't be drunk with wine, which is uh, unhealthy, but be filled by means of the Spirit. So it's a, he's contrasting 
the divine viewpoint way of spirituality is to be filled by means of the spirit with the with the pagan view, which is you go out and you get filled with wine and then the uh, God will uh, will fill you and you will become one with him and life will be wonderful and you'll be happy and joyful and everything else. Now, if we look at this verse and we see what the consequences are of being filled by means of the Spirit, instrumental dative there, we find that the, the consequence of that is expressed through a series of participles, starting in verse 19. We're singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing, making melody to the Lord with all your heart, giving thanks. So, so singing hymns, singing as part of worship is, is a characteristic of being filled by means of the Spirit. Some people don't like to sing, but guess what? God says it's a good thing, and it's part of the demonstration that you are being filled by means of the Spirit. You can't hide behind that excuse. Uh, goes on to say, uh, second, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And third, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Now, that's going to manifest itself in your marriage and in your home life and family life and in your work life. Wives are going to be submissive to the husbands. Husbands are going to love your wives. Fathers are not going to exasperate their children. Children are going to respect and honor their parents. Employers are going to uh, treat their employees or masters are going to treat their slaves with respect. And slaves are going to obey their masters. Now turn over two books from Ephesians past Philippians to Colossians. Colossians chapter 3, verse 16. Colossians 3.16 we read another command. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Okay, what does that have to do with being filled by means of the Spirit? Well, the Spirit's the means of the filling. The content of the filling is the word of God. Be filled, uh, let the word of Christ dwell richly in in you, teaching and admonishing one another and all, with all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Whatever you do, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. And then 18, wives, submit to your husbands. Husbands, love your wives. Children, obey your parents. Fathers, don't provoke your children. Slaves, obey your masters. See, the results of one command are the same results of the other command. What does that tell you? That those two commands are talking about two actions that are complementary to one another. They work together in tandem. The Spirit of God with the Word of God. You can't have the Spirit of God alone. You can't have the Word of God alone. It's the Spirit who fills you with His Word. When you are walking in dependence on the Holy Spirit, Galatians 5.16 the Holy Spirit is filling you with His Word. When you stop, you're no longer being filled by the Holy Spirit. He's doing other things, slapping you around, getting your attention, disciplining you, trying to uh, get you to confess your sins, but He's not producing growth anymore. He's not using the Word to fill you because you said you don't want it. And so that's, that's how Ephesians... 5.18, Colossians 3.16 fit together. 
It's the Spirit of God plus the Word of God in tandem to produce spiritual growth and spiritual maturity. So when we look at a passage like if, like Acts chapter 2, verse 3, and we read that they were all filled uh, with the Holy Spirit, it's not plerao, it's pimplemi. It's not talking about the spiritual life, walking by the Holy Spirit, or anything like that. It is talking about a sovereign, unique, discreet act of God, unexpected, not asked for, which is going to result in speaking certain things, the boldness that comes with it, and speaking uh, certain things of truth. So they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, Pimplemi, and began to speak in other languages as the Spirit gave them utterance. The word translated tongues means languages. It's the normal word that was used for language in many places, uh, many different languages use the word tongue to describe whatever their word is for tongue to describe language. In Greek, it's glossa. It never means ecstatic utterance. Never. Oh, somebody's going to say, oh, but I looked it up in the Greek dictionary in Bauer, Arndt, and Gingrich, and it says that there's a third meaning, and it means ecstatic utterance. Yes, but if you look at the only places they think it can mean that, it's Acts 1 and 1 Corinthians 13, and you can't use those passages to come up with that meaning, you can't use the, that passage to define itself. You have to find some place other than those three pass, passages, Acts 13, I mean, 1 Corinthians 13, 1 Corinthians 14, and Acts, Acts 2. You've got to find a use of it somewhere else in Greek literature, otherwise you're just making up the meaning. And that's what Arn Gingrich did. And there's a number of places. So you can't go to Greek dictionaries or Hebrew dictionaries and say just because the dictionary says that's what the word means, that's what it means. You define a word by going to how people use it in literature or speaking. How people use a word gives it its definition, not the dictionary. A dictionary simply reflects what the lexicographer got from his study of usage. And lexicographers have theological biases. So next time we'll come back and we will see what happens when they start to speak in languages they didn't learn the normal way, but the Holy Spirit provided for them. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study these things, to come to understand the ministry of God the Holy Spirit a little more, to realize that the ministry of God the Holy Spirit that's important to us in terms of our ongoing spiritual growth is the filling ministry that when we're in fellowship, he fills us with your word, and it is your word that is used by the Holy Spirit to sanctify us, to mature us, and to prepare us to glorify you both in this life and in the life to come. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.